Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to reach out to you with a very special message. This month marks the start of LARB's year-end matching grant drive, where all donations will be matched by an anonymous donor. When you support LARB, not only are you supporting the work that we do here on the LARB Radio Hour, but you're also supporting all of the writers and editors who are publishing criticism, original fiction, essays, and poetry, both on our online website and in our print magazine. Any donation to LARB between now and December 31st will go twice as far thanks to this matching donation. We hope you'll consider donating at lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with the writer Robert Gluck about his new book about Ed. Right. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about before we got on here is like how to categorize this book, because it's... On the surface of it, it is basically a story about Robert Gluck's real-life partner, Ed Aralixugai, who passed away due to, to AIDS. And it's his attempt, Robert's attempt to kind of reckon with that person. But it's also not, what I'm describing sounds like memoir, right? But it's not. And that's not just because formally it's moving around non-linearly, but also because it may be partially fiction, you know, or there's things that have been filled in in very creative ways. Yeah, I think it's in that new narrative sweet spot to me, which Robert Gluck is one of the pretenders of that genre or form Mm -hmm. or collection of people from San Francisco that started writing kind of a mix between memoir and fiction in the late 1970s. Where, right, it's a personal story, maybe things are invented, but it doesn't, the way it's presented structurally, it's very interesting. It, it has so many of this tools of fiction, mm-hmm. we might say, mm-hmm. that um, it doesn't seem like a straight up memoir. It uses the tools of story and in a way that are not necessarily straightforward and poetry. And there's, you know, found materials as well. There's a large section of Ed's dreams taken from his dream journals um, at the end that have been edited and kind of made into a beautiful, long dream. Yeah. It's very creatively done, which I would expect nothing less from Robert Wook. All right, well, let's get to that interview. Great. We're excited to have Robert Gluck with us on the line today. Bob is a poet, fiction writer, critic, editor, and along with Bruce Boone, the founder of the new narrative literary movement that first began in the late 1970s. The author of numerous collections of poetry, fiction, and essays, Bob was also on the other side of the publishing industry as former co-director of Small Press Traffic and an editor at Lapis Press. Bob joins us today from his home in San Francisco to discuss his latest book, About Ed. The book is a nonlinear memoir of sorts, parsing the life and death of Bob's lover of eight years, the artist Ed Aralek Sugai. 
This narrative moves promiscuously back and forth between the 1970s when Bob and Ed's relationship took shape, blossomed, and then fell apart amid the heady thrills of gay liberation, to the 1980s when AIDS ravages the gay community and Ed is diagnosed with HIV, to Ed's death in 1994, and Bob's wrestling with the emotional aftermath of that loss years later. Along the way, readers bear witness to the peaks and valleys of that relationship, tumultuous moments that are conjured in elegiac reveries, as well as the everyday objects, such as a coffee mug, for instance, from which the world of a deeply intimate personal history erupts always into the present. A book about loss, memory, and relation about Ed forces us to confront what we know and what we don't know about the loved ones who indelibly shape our lives. Welcome to the show, Bob. We're so grateful to be speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for that description. Very nice description of the book. I want to start with the structure of the book, because I know that you wrote it over many years, and I just found the structure so interesting where it begins. It doesn't begin exactly with Ed. I was curious just what the book is made of in terms of if you were writing these as fragments and then putting them together, if you always assumed it would be a larger narrative, the use of Ed's dream journals, if you had other material you were working off that Ed had written, just what the totality of this book is and and how it kind of took shape. The first place, there was a long short story called Everyman, a long story. That was published in 19, I think, 1990, 1991. Ed was still alive, and in fact, he helped me write it. It centers on the day that he was diagnosed, but it also contains lots of other stuff, which I wanted to explore, like the death of my neighbor across the street. And I wanted to compare these two deaths, one which took place very much in the midst of a community, and one that was more isolated and more private death or private, not yet death, but death on the horizon. And so it was a bit a bit like writing, just trying to kind of explore a kind of romance I had with how death happens inside a community. And so that was in the first place. That's about, I don't know, 60 pages of the book. And then Ed died in 1994. And in the beginning of this century, around 2003, it came to me that I wanted to revisit that matter and to just take on the subject, basically. And uh, I call it my version of an AIDS memoir that's also a novel. So it kind of refuse a specific genre. And so then I, I've been writing it for about 20 years, along with doing plenty of other things and publishing other things. But I always came back to this. And it seemed to me, now it seems to me that I just simply had to get older before I finished it. After the first section, which is about Max's death across the street and Ed's diagnosis and feelings around that and other deaths, actually, and the body in that context. What does it mean? Who possesses the body? And... The middle of the book, which is the largest section, I go both backwards and forwards. I go back to our life together. I wanted to make San Francisco itself a character. So I went back to our lives in the 70s, and I went forward to past Ed's death. And 
I wanted to show how his death refracted through other things in life. There's the long kind of actually two scenes where sex is happening in different contexts, but there's there's a death that's refracted through these engagements. So that's another thing I was exploring. And then the third section, Ed was a great dreamer. When we got together in 1970, well, he would wake up and he would tell me one dream and then the next dream back and the next dream back into the night in detail. And there was something about that. I mean, that was unique. I'd never known anybody who had that kind of access. And it was sort of related to his ability to do anything with plants and also related to his kind of isolation and the silence of his character. So the last section is really like a a fantasia of his dreams. They start at the beginning. That is, they start at the beginning of the night, which is the most recent dreams and go back to when he was 20 years old. So I, I started him writing these dream journals and then his his lover, Daniel, lent them to me. I read them all, decades of dreams. I copied out about 300 pages, and I boiled them down to about 50 pages. It's really one of the hardest things I ever did in my life. And I just couldn't get any fewer pages. (laughs) Those were the pages. It was like meeting Ed in the Bardo. It was a sense that he's dead, but you're meeting him. And I wanted to see how it would be for a reader to experience 50 pages of somebody's dreams, how it could install Ed inside the reader in some way and turn the reader into a tomb monument for Ed, just what it would do to someone's psychic life and to have that kind of access. And uh, I was also thinking of this. There's kind of a favorite Gnostic gospel that I've been mulling over that has beguiled me for, I don't know, 20 years or so, 30 years. And it's a parable, which I I will now tell you. (laughs) So Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and they come to a nursing woman, a woman and a baby. And the disciples say, is that what heaven is going to look like? Which is interesting right there. You'll see the loss of ego boundaries between the mother and the and the baby and the way that the baby's needs are satisfied sort of need and desire coming together and jesus says well not really he says when the inside is like the outside the outside is like the inside and the male is the female and the female is the male and there's this list of collapsing binaries But then he goes on and he says, when the foot is replaced by a foot and the hand is replaced by a hand, the eye is replaced by an eye, and an image is replaced by an image, then you will be in heaven. And I just completely love that without 100% understanding. But to me, it means heaven is an unfolding of images, one replacing another, replacing another, instead of kind of the static heaven of Dante, where you're just arrive and you're one thing, and that's it. That's the description of your life. This is something that's a process. And that's what I was thinking of when I put the last section together. I wanted this to be a kind of heaven. 
Along these lines, I have a question that feels indelicate on the face of it, which is kind of why did this book take you 20 years to write? But I ask this because what you're saying before about you needed to be older in order to actually write it, but there are many moments throughout the book where we can see this as both an emotional struggle and a craft struggle. So you are facing a kind of how do I tell this story? There's lots of very familiar self-doubt of kind of, you know, the like, what am I even doing with the story? What, you know, is this for me? How am I responding to things that you find in his journals, memories that you have that are triggering for you, but they play out differently? You imagine you're always having to imagine how they play out for Ed. So can you just talk about how you went through this process, like what worked and what didn't, and how you address that to kind of arrive at the final form of the book? I think for any of the novels, I always start at zero. I don't start with much. I feel like I just have to reinvent the wheel, and I don't know how to do it any other way. I don't know how to write any other way. And I felt very inadequate to the task. (laughs) And I usually don't become interested in a book until I have figured out how to make it too hard for me to write, <laughs> uh, too difficult. I just can't do it. And then it becomes a problem that I have to work out. This book had some special problems. One is that, well, you have to have a kind of tact, but you have to invent that kind of tact when you're writing about a person who has died hmm. because they're not there to correct you and their their life is more in your hand now than it is in theirs. You are the repository of their life. And so how that's going to be portrayed is your responsibility. What I attempted to do in the novel is have Ed, Ed appears quite a bit. He's on a tape, he's on tape, there's his dreams, there's his journals. And I wanted Ed to kind of stand alone insofar as I could make that happen as well as being refracted through me and my experience of him. I think if you go through and sort of see my observations about him and then go through and see where he talks and appears actually as himself, it's not the same. Yeah, He's much more interesting <laughs> <laughs> and just a great human being in ways that I Bob doesn't kind of get. Mm. So, so that's one, one aspect of it. I guess I'm, my novels come apart very easily. I'm sort of a collagist. So sentences can, you know, the same sentence could be at the end as in the middle, depending. I'm really a writer of sentences more than anything. The book for me wasn't done, wasn't finished until it had the feeling, that feeling that a kind of poor, empty space between sentences, mm. kind of porousness. And then there's the question of what self is, how to represent a self, which for me is, I want to represent it as a collaborative process rather than some kind of individual thing, something closed off. And that includes the authorial self, but also just the self, just Bob. So that has to take place as well in some way that there has to be a sense that Bob is a collaboration that we're all collaborations and very porous and continuous, more or less, with with each other. You know, I think because you and Ed 
got together when you were so young. You know, there's the way in which also, and it seems like from what I gather from the book, it, that you were each other's first love. You know, that you were together in your 20s and that neither of you maybe had been in a relationship before. So in a very material sense, you also became very much a part of who each other was because you were young and influenced each other. I was wondering if you could describe Ed a bit just as a person and also maybe talk about what you shared and the differences between you two in, in terms of personality or character. Well, maybe the first thing to say about Ed was he was half Japanese from Japanese family. Well, let's see where to begin. <laughs> we were, in some ways, we were so similar. And maybe I, in the book, I, I don't recognize it until I do. But we were so similar that our mothers couldn't tell us apart on the phone, couldn't tell our voices apart. Ed didn't speak when he was a kid. He was called Silent Ed. <laughs> and we kind of, I taught him to speak in a way. I would ask him at the end of the day to tell me everything, and he would tell me everything. So like standing in line at the bank took as long to tell as standing in line at the bank. And this kind of suppression of figure and ground <laughs> was something that I think we were both kind of interested in, that you, you didn't say, here's the main thing. You said, here's everything. He was an artist, and in fact, his work has received some attention recently, even after all these years. It's been in some galleries and museum shows. So we were artists together. He was an artist. I was a writer. I would pillage his dream journals. I would model for him. We thought of his dreams as a kind of a, we didn't analyze them. They were like a comments producing images. That's how we understood them. He was uh, sexually probably the most live sexual person I've ever encountered. And, you know, sex in the 70s for a gay man in San Francisco <laughs> was pretty intense. And he was very out there. He just would do anything that he could think of. And imagining it was just, there was no shadow between the, the act and the, <laughs> and the, and the um, thought. He would just come home at the end of the day and say, well, I'm having an affair with the family. <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, I had sex with the Persian rug buyer at Macy's in the back room on the Bacaras. <laughs> Sort of anything could happen. And I was not as courageous at all. And I was quite excited about his, his relation to sex and his body. And that combined with his dreams, his lyricism, his isolation, basically, made me feel as though he were some, a kind of a lyric possibility that I could enter and experience risk and experience a kind of uh, poetics in a way. Also, he could be very stormy. He had a horrible, horrible upbringing, abusive, and storms could come, angers could come completely out of the blue. We never knew when to expect them. Bad, it was just like a hurricane. He was a heedless personality. If he was angry, everything went into it. He was a very passionate soul. So, well, those are 
some of the ways I experienced it. So he didn't talk. And, you know, I would be quite exasperated uh, sometimes, you know, like after four hours of silence, he would say, do you like the sky? (laughs) (laughs) And, (laughs) well, maybe, (laughs) depends. So he did after a while, but um, so he could be quite exasperating. And he lived for himself. Being with him was basically taking care of him. He was very beautiful. That was also part of it. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Robert Gluck, author of About Ed. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. I'm so happy to have Sasha Frere Jones on the line. Sasha Frere Jones is a critic, a musician, and he is the author of a memoir called Earlier. And he has a book to recommend. So good to be back, Kate. I do have a recommendation. The reasons that this book would be interesting now don't need to be stressed or overstated because it'll be obvious. There's a scholar, a historian named Avi Shlaim. It might be Shlaim. I'm so sorry. I don't know Avi. He is a truly magical person. He is an Iraqi Jew who came to Israel when he was very young. And he was a member of the Israeli army when he was young. I don't know if it was called the IDF then. But then he became an historian and he started to think slightly differently about his family and his life in Israel. And anyway, he's very, very committed. He's a beautiful writer. He's incredibly calm. I recommend finding him on YouTube. He's the most avuncular, delightful, sweet person. And he's extremely concrete about stuff. He's He doesn't like the idea of being ideological or political, although he has taken certain stances over the course of his life. He wants it all to be represented by the facts in the historical record. I think his books are some of the most valuable on the region, the various conflicts. But the one that my wife and I are both either reading or rereading right now is called The Iron Wall. All of his books, he actually just wrote a memoir, which is remarkable because he waited till he's 78 now. Three Worlds actually might be the best one to start with, but all of his work is essentially about the same thing, the nature of the region and the conflicts that play out in that region and the historical record. And he's incredibly, like Robert Caro, he's like incredibly... There's so much detail, but it's so beautifully put together and he moves very slowly. So there's no leap into anything. And as he aggregates these facts, you know, the sort of the outcome is kind of devastating. And anyway, The Iron Wall is one of the best books of its kind. And I feel like it doesn't get recommended as often as other titles, which are also amazing. I mean, everybody should read Elan Pape and other people. But yeah, it's very good to be with someone who's so calm in a moment of, I don't even know how to describe what's going on, but in a moment of waking up and going to bed in a complete state of rage and misery and depression, Avi is a very nice guy to hang out with. And he simply knows literally everything. I don't know that there's a single thing that has ever happened that he doesn't know. The same way when you're reading, you know, The Power Broker and you think, is there anything that has ever happened in New York City that Bob Caro doesn't know? Like the same feeling of you can trust this person. Also, they're they're from allegedly, well, from my political persuasion, he's one of the bad guys, so to speak. But that's not where he ends up. He ends up in a position that's really admirable because he has experiences that you simply cannot gainsay. 
he has done stuff that when you're talking to someone about this, you don't usually talk to someone who has this guy's past. And his family, his parents are fascinating. They're Iraqi Jews and they they grew up at a time when they didn't want to go to Israel. They, everyone got along. They didn't want to move. As his father said, apparently over and over, he said, I spent, you know, I've always wanted Israel to exist, just not in my lifetime. That's just, he would say that in a very sort of Jewish way, complaining. Anyway, The Iron Wall is a truly incredible book. There are also a million sub-stories that just never float to the surface because there's so much sort of stuff to discuss. But um, I mean, King Abdullah, don't talk enough about him. Like there's just so much to get into. And so big shout out to Avi. He's still very much with us and he's doing podcasts and he's he's amazing. And I'm going to learn how to say your last name, Avi. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you for that very, very timely suggestion. Can you tell us Avi's name as best you can pronounce it and the title just one more time? I'll try. Maybe I'll say it two different ways and we'll probably just look <laughs> up on YouTube how to say it. So it's either okay. Avi Shlaim or Avi Shlaim. The name of the book is The Iron Wall. Thank you so much, Sasha. Of course. That was Sasha Frere-Jones. His new book is called Earlier. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Robert Cook, author of About Ed. I'm curious, you know, one of the things, as much as you're telling us all the things you know about Ed, and the thing that I walk away from this book so appreciative of is the intimacy of the account that you provide. But part of that intimacy also means acknowledging, and I think the book tarries a lot around the fact that there is, in fact, much that you don't know about Ed, like despite this kind of intimate, full access relationship, you know, like all those kind of things, right? Things that others don't know ostensibly, right? Well, actually, quite a few people did. <laughs> sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. In, in, in Ed's case. Um, but yet there are these things like, one finds oneself, perhaps it's not the right emotion to name, but almost enraged to find that there's, wait, you didn't respond the way that I thought you would. Like, and I think I know everything about you. Or there's this thing of this emotional interiority that I don't have access to. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of how you faced that unknowability or that peace that always will recede from you and that you desire to know both in your actual relationship with Ed while he was alive, but also in your attempt to reconstruct him and his life in this book. Right, right. Yeah, I don't think I would have considered the book finished if I felt that the reader would have an impression that they knew him the way that you know Anna Karenina or some other you know, great fictional character. I would want that that feeling of to be incomplete. And as I said before, I included, I tried to include Ed on, Ed on his own. Not that that would be a complete picture either, but it would be a different picture from the one that I was drawing. I guess another and, way of asking this is, does it bother you to have that that unknowability, or do you just accept that as a condition of all of our relationships? You know, I'm doing my archives now, and uh, I came across a poem that I wrote when I was with Ed, and one of the lines is something like, who will ever know if her lover's vein bursts? Who will ever know if her lover's vein might burst, and he'll charge down a hall swinging an axe? 
And so there's always within an element of danger. And I wanted to convey that. But I think uh, in general, in my writing, I want to have things that you don't know and even bewilderment travel along with the story so that there's always a feeling that there's an other possibilities and other directions that, that one could go in. And I think that would be, that's probably kind of basic to my sense of writing, that the unknown should travel along with, with the narrative. Yeah, I was surprised in this story how open, you know, especially I think we have such an idea of what an AIDS narrative would be. And there's such a well-worn kind of plot line that we all have imbibed at this point and how different this book felt and um, sad, but also that that wasn't the primary note. You know, there was much more of a ponderous, reflective beauty, just so much more in there. And and I guess, um, you know, I'm such a fan of many new narrative writers, including yourself, and wondering about the AIDS crisis coinciding with new narrative and kind of thinking of other ways to tell stories. You know, I know it was influenced by a lot of French writers, but I I was wondering if there was any kind of way of that the AIDS crisis became something that you were all thinking about in the way you wanted to write or how, you know, the crisis touched your workshops or also a lot of writers who you taught contracted AIDS and died fairly young, just what, how it affected the movement if it did. Well, let me answer in the first place. Well, it took me this long really to write about it, to write about HIV. Sometimes uh, I think about the writer Seabald writing about the Holocaust and how it took a while to be able to write about the Holocaust in such a way as the richness of people's individual lives could come forward rather than be submerged in the horror of their death. The trauma, so this happens in one's personal life, somebody dies and their death really does replace their life for a while, the trauma of their death. And I think that happens generationally too. Generation feels a trauma and that replaces the lives of the people that were our friends and lovers. And so, for me anyway, I, it seemed that that was one of the reasons I needed to wait a bit to write about it, to look at it. It was a moment when, or not a moment, but a decade when, in the gay world, um, gay men especially had become kind of a, a shorthand for the national libido. <laughs> And that had happened in all kinds of ways. Gay men became visible in ways that we hadn't forever, for the first time. And, you know, it was a very sexualized presence on the national stage. And then in the course of a decade, that was replaced by death. So first sex and then death becomes the center of the community. Well, of course, this has to affect everyone. That's not, nobody is, nobody is spared from that. And I mean, one thing that it did was make us aware of the fragility of the body down to the senses. We we're already thinking about the body, kind of the body, say, in performance art, where you do something risky and you can't take it back, something irrevocable. 
And that is something we were trying to import into our writing. But then I think it just went further in that direction in terms of that's a risky place, and it is a vulnerable place, but not a fragile place. But then comes this fragility. And there were wonderful works that, you know, like Kevin Killian's Argento series, which is really a masterpiece. And some of, you know, Dodi Bellamy's work addresses it, uh, the book Real. So most of us addressed it in different ways. I was wondering, too, you know, you'd said earlier that San Francisco is a character in this book itself, both as kind of the the set dressing and also the kind of ambiential setting in which like your relationship and Ed's diagnosis and the, all of it takes place. I'm curious, both like on the one hand, the novel allows us to see how the two of you, in as much as we get it through your refracted experience, change from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then to the present. Can you talk a little bit about how San Francisco has changed as a kind of character for you from those like the 70s to the 80s and the 90s, you know, which is kind of a period that we're more or less familiar with in that arc of narrative that we tend to get, but how you feel now living in that city today? Oh, and San Francisco is going through such a woebegone period right now. Well, that's just another part of the boom and bust cycle that has always been San Francisco, you know, to say that San Francisco is in a doom spiral feels like, well, you're just hitting copy, paste and repeat from history. Yes, it's true. It's true. It's, it's what appears in the newspapers. The 70s, I think maybe for me, the big thing was there was a culture of poverty and you could live here very cheaply. I think my rent was about $50 a month. And, and even in, if you do the dollars thing, that's still really cheap. And I didn't work very much. I worked part-time mostly, or I worked, you know, a while and then I'd quit. So, well, that's remarkably different experience of the city today. So that's one thing. The climate's cooling down the sexual heat and so on uh, happened before HIV. By the end of the 70s, things were changing and the city was changing. Things were becoming more expensive. It was, you know, the era of greed. For the first time, my students were asking me, well, an agent like this, um, <laughs> is this, you know, there was an idea that you're supposed to make money. And um, the professionalization also it was long. From many points of view, even the act of being a writer became more professionalized with technical vocabularies and theory, difficult theory, and so on. So writing itself changed and took a more professional turn. Those ways of being a writer had more to do with the university than previously, say. I'm reminded, uh, when I talk about the culture of poverty, I'm reminded of the anecdote, well, in Jack the Modernist, there's a there's a bathhouse scene, and it's where Bob goes furthest in sex in the book. And well, I'm being at one point I'm being fucked and blown at the same time. <laughs> and so I came across, as I said, I'm doing my archives. I came across an early draft of that scene where I included my salary <laughs> uh, because I thought, well. That's the one thing nobody will ever tell anybody is their salary. It's like much more private than anything, anything sexual. 
And all my friends told said, no, no, you have to take that out. It spoils the scene. It's just, you know, and besides your salary is going to change. And in fact, my salary didn't change for a long time. Those <laughs> were the small press traffic years. I was just getting this tiny grant from the California Arts Council. Yeah, it was the same for years and years. What changed was all the sex that I was describing. And that shift away from all of that, or even the meaning of promiscuity, what, what it would mean after HIV. Well, anyway, that was a big change in my part of the city. Well, you know, this San Francisco story, it's a hub, it's a tech hub, and so on. And that's not going away. It's actually becoming a big AI hub now. So that's the future here. It would have been nice if our badly run and corrupt city government made a space for artists and preserved art institutions, artist institutions, and rents, low rents for writers and artists as some other cities have. But San Francisco has always been very ineptly run. It's like one of the things you could say about the city. There's a lot of corruption in the government. So how is San Francisco going to deal with its problems? The problems are basically wealth disparity, income disparity, just the way it is for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Until that is dealt with, San Francisco problems are not going to go away. In terms of homeless, that has to be dealt with on a federal level. This country is actually doing pretty well on the one hand, is and is also in a Great Depression on the other hand. And until that is really dealt with, their public works projects the way they were to get the country out of the Great Depression in the first place, the first depression, until things like that happen, things can't change. So when I see a school system that has decided to strike for better wages and better conditions, my heart fills with joy because that is that is the future, is to get power back to labor. You can't give labor more power. They have to seize it. But for that to happen, that's the hope that there will be a, a better future. So I have two questions, and I, I'm with you on everything you just said, and I agree. But it may be completely irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a good point. Yes, it is relevant because it's relevant to the book as well, because the story happens in part because of the kind of city San Francisco is at the time. Yes. Do you think that Ed assumed that you would write this kind of book? Do you think that he hoped almost that you would make a monument to him, that you would make people remember him after he was gone, even if that was uh, what many people who were dying you know, before their time, we're hoping if there was tension around that as well of, um, oh, I hope this person's not going to be writing about me. I'd rather it be this other person or that feeling of relying on your, on your friends to keep your memory alive when your friends are artists. One thing I know for sure is that Ed would be giving me permission to do what I've done. Of that, I am certain, because he did when he was alive. And it was like our relationship. We did do that. We turned our lives into poems and paintings. And it was a very, you know, we sort of lived our, lived our fictions and wrote our lives. And that, that wouldn't be any surprise to him 
And I don't think the things that I wrote would be a surprise either, because he wanted to be portrayed as a wild child. I mean, he said that actually, he said, yes, portray me as a wild child. So insofar as I did, I think he would be go along with that. My other question was just, you say you're a writer of the sentence primarily. And um, I did keep on thinking as I was reading this book, like these sentences are wild. And you, you know, I thought, oh, it was like a fun house could be one description that you just go in, but it's more like a slip and slide. Like you start at one point, there's just this wild dip in the middle and then you come out the other side. Um, I really did think on the level of the sentence, the book was incredibly surprising. So just as much as it's possible to talk about how you write sentences, how you compose sentences, I mean, maybe it's too banal to even narrate, but is there anything special that you do to get your lines the way they are? On the one hand, I think I probably chop onions the way I write sentences. I mean, one does everything pretty much like oneself, but I work at them. To say I work at them until they're right, it doesn't really tell you anything. I want them to be boiled down. I compress a lot in my rewriting, like a lot. And I juxtapose. So a sentence may not light up in one place, but in another place might light up a whole paragraph. And so, as I say, I am a kind of collagist. I don't have a theory of writing sentences, but I was, I mean, somebody who influenced me a lot just on this level of the sentence was Maurice Blanchot. And my sentences don't do the same as his sentences do, which is often become uh, positive, then negative, then positive, then negative, and kind of switch back and forth. So a sentence might be a double negative or a triple negative to make a positive or a negative. Or, so that's a little bit dizzying for me. But just the isolation of the sentences and their, the space between them, I think that's something I got from him. You know, I'm just curious as we kind of wrap up, like what your experience of the history that you recount in the book is now that you've finished the book. It's a strange thing to ask, but it's, do you feel more at peace with the more painful parts of these memories? You know, both the the personal slights, like you're saying, his stormy personality, but also with the pain of the loss, or is that separate from the work and the craft of writing for you? A couple of years ago, now four years ago, I became quite ill, and uh, I could have died. I had a bacteria in my spine, and at a certain point, I couldn't get out of bed anymore. I was undiagnosed. That was the problem. So I was just weaker and weaker, and finally, I couldn't do anything. And I had to think that I could die because that was kind of on the horizon at that point. And my regrets came up like a PowerPoint presentation. It was like one, two, three, bullet, bullet, bullet. And the first one was that I haven't finished this damn novel. Mm. So on the one hand, I didn't want to finish it. One reason was because it marks a stage in my relationship with Ed that this engagement is done. And that's one reason I was putting it off. Another reason is that I just had to become a different person in order to finish it. but. 
the feeling I have now, and it's funny you should use the word peace because that's what I do feel. I feel quite peaceful about the book. So doubtless that will be replaced by something else. <laughs> but right now I feel I feel peaceful about it. You know, it was a lot of hard work during the summer just getting it going through the editing process and so on and getting it put into a book. So there was that as well. That is a kind of well, actually kind of a pleasant trauma, say. Mm-hmm. It's like there are many, many decisions, final decisions to be made that are final. So <laughs> So that happened, and now that is in the past. So I would say, yeah, I feel right at this moment as we speak right now on Tuesday, I feel peaceful about it. I'm eager to see what people will think, whether they can read it. I still wonder if people could read it. That's great. I think that's a lovely place to close this discussion. We've been speaking with Robert Gluck, author most recently of About Ed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARP Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim, editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.